ACEC welcomes you back to Washington, D.C. for our annual convention and legislative summit taking place on May 22nd through the 25th. Right in the heart of downtown at the Grand Hyatt, steps away from Capitol Hill. This three-day convention features high-profile speakers, education sessions on AEC industry topics, networking, roundtables, and more. And of course, this is our signature advocacy event, so you don't want to miss your opportunity to have your voice heard on Capitol Hill. The clock is ticking, though. Early bird registration ends on April 21st, just days away. Act now. Secure your space for the premier engineering event of the year. Go to www.acec.org to learn more. Welcome to Engineering Influence Podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. And we are gearing up for Earth Day week. Uh, Earth Day, I think that, you know, given the value and, and, and what our industry does every day, essentially, is Earth Day for America's engineering industry. But we do want to take this week to highlight uh, some of the work that our members are doing on um, environmental issues, uh, dealing with climate, dealing with uh, these issues that are becoming increasingly important uh, in the way that we design the built environment. And we do have a book which recently came out from ACEC, Climate Change in the Built Environment, which is an 11-chaptered uh, resource book. It's an extremely in-depth book that covers everything from the historical uh, overview of climate change to adapting uh, to it in, in design, um, how engineers uh, can plan and uh, from a corporate perspective, you know, organize uh, to deal with these issues. It takes a look at the regulatory and risk management aspects. And uh, we are very, very pleased to be joined by um, two of the contributors to this book. And they have a fantastic chapter entitled Looking Ahead, Designing a Resilient Future. And uh, we are joined by Elizabeth Bradford, who's the National Resilience Lead with Michael Baker International, and Dr. Luce Bassetti, the Community of Practice Lead for Coastal Planning and Engineering at Jacobs Engineering. And they work together on, on this chapter, and, and it really kind of touches a chord for me because um, I'm a big strategy person in communications. It's you know, not completely analogous, but it's taking this kind of idea of how do you communicate or even, you know, crisis communications and taking an abstract idea or an idea that kind of has a catchphrase assigned to it and creating a plan and structure and how you actually deal with this from a programmatic approach. And uh, uh, we'll get into the, to, to the meat here. Um, but first, I want to start off by welcoming you both to the program and, and just asking how, how you got engaged with the book. What, 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 what drove you to contribute? Uh, to the book, Elizabeth. Let's 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 start with you. Hi, thank you, Jeff. Um, I really appreciate being on the podcast today. So, what drove me to this is um, just as my career has moved from construction to environmental consulting to sustainability and finally resilience, I've seen across the A and E industry all this connectedness mm -hmm. across those disciplines and the various sectors. And resilience and sustainability have, have evolved and progressed in silos in these various engineering disciplines and design disciplines. 
So think like architecture, engineering, water, wastewater, and also organizational functions like risk management, asset management, and even human resources are are addressing sustainability and resilience topics in their own way. And, and each has been making really great strides in developing tools and best practices to address risks most relevant to their discipline. But typically those are, those are done in isolation from each other. And over the years, a lot of my work has focused on organizational change. So how to get people within an organization to adopt new ideas and strategies And in this book, um, my goal was really to help practitioners, project managers, and project owners, one, see that it's all connected. Mm -hmm. All of these infrastructure and building systems that we create and enhance with our work, it's all connected to the environment and then to the social and financial systems in which we place them. So um, to get to the resilient future we seek, we need to leverage the best practices around sustainability, first by reducing demand, then greening the source of energy, water, materials, et cetera. And then to do that, we really have to work closely with the design and engineering discipline. So it's not just a sustainability and resilience practitioner, it's really the whole team working together so at this point, most organizations are practicing resilience and sustainability in some capacity, but now we have to pull it together. Um, it's time for all of us to get in the same boat and start rowing together. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good point. I think that, it, you know, it, it's interesting that resilience has become kind of a catchphrase uh, to an extent mm-hmm. that everybody says, Oh, it's resilient. Well, this is resilient infrastructure. This is, this is built for to be resilient, but you know, everybody has their own definition of it and they're all independently siloed this to your point. And, and it's over time, this has evolved to become much more integrated and, and, and um, it's important to take a systems approach to this question. Um, And uh, Dr. Bassetti, you and I were talking earlier before we, 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 uh, you know, hit record and we talked about that point that, you know, everybody has their own definition and, and, and how do you bring this all together into, into a program? Um, what do you hope people walk away from uh, after reading this chapter? Well, first, thank, thanks again for having us. Uh, very exciting to be able mm-hmm. to promote this chapter. So I think, I think to go back to what you were saying, uh, that's, that's actually the reason why I contributed to this book is that all started with me with how do you define resilience? How does the world understand resilience and sustainability? What does it mean to people in their personal and professional life? So I ended up working in multiple countries and multiple states in the US. And the more research I was doing to educate myself, the more disconnected I realized those words and those people using them could be. And, and those words, those concepts are not just fancy words like you were saying, to put out there, get attention, they're actually at the center of a future and part of the reason why I did the contribution in this book. So what I hope for the reader uh, to take away is, um, is that they need to be prepared as much as possible for what might come. What really made it full circle for me, and I hope to the reader, is the social value and climate justice attached to the resilience and sustainability um, word. Uh, this made it more personal for me, and I hope the reader can get attached to this and get more personal with these concepts. Yeah. Um, like work by the United Nations has highlighted the social dimension of climate change, right? 
increasingly linking the emotive, political dimension to resilience and sustainability. So I like to give examples usually. So if I give you an example, it is estimated that the world's 52 island nations emit less than 1% of global greenhouse gases. You will say that's amazing, right? Yeah. And it's amazing, but they will be the one that will suffer extremely from the climate change. And mm -hmm. that's where every sector will be affected by that. We're talking about tourism, fisheries, health, infrastructure, agriculture. It's going to be all these people that work in silo are going to realize that they're all impacted by the same issue. Yeah. So for me, the inclusion of climate justice in sustainability and resilience planning, which going to link the human rights and development to achieve, I guess, more human-centered approach and better connectivity is what made me want to contribute to this book. And, and I really hope the reader will be able to realize that it's not somebody else's problem, but all of us need to get together on this one. Yeah, I, I think that it's a really good point that you both raise. I, you know, when my background is, is congressional, and I, when I was on congressional staff with the Transportation Committee in the House, it seemed like overnight people started using the term resilient. And mm -hmm. in, in terms of, of the legislative process, they were talking about usually pre-disaster mitigation. They were talking about the response, federal response to natural disasters or, or um, you know, human-caused disasters. Uh, but no one really... It, it was just this kind of framework idea of resilient, and, and it was left open to each individual member on the committee almost kind of figure out their own idea of what resilience was. And when, even when they looked at it, they had a very narrow view that was separate from everybody else's view. And to, from a policy perspective, the danger in that is if you're narrowing the scope, you're, you're eliminating all these other factors, these economic, social factors uh, that, that play in to the question of resiliency. And, and I think it's really important that in this chapter, you kind of break this out and take a program management approach to sustainability and resilience. And, and what I really like is the fact that you go beyond just the program approach to actually creating a six-step iterative process where you actually look at the issue and you break it down. And that is kind of the, the observe, strategize, plan, do, check and adjust method. And, and those last two pieces of, the, of, of that formula, I think, are really important because it's that check and adjust portion. Um, mm -hmm. Because so many times people make a plan, they spend a lot of time on a plan, and then they put it up on a shelf and they don't look at it. And by the time they actually have to use it, it's woefully outdated. Um, so why do you think it's important, number one, to take that program management approach to sustainability and resilience? And two, how, why do you think this process is so important for organizations to, to consider when they're, when they're taking on this kind of work? Right. Well, un unfortunately, over the years, um, I've seen a lot of really well thought out um, strategies go silent after launching. And, and I'm thinking about organizational mm -hmm. strategies because they really um, people put a lot of time and effort into them. But in the end, they lack the structure, the funding, the individual ownership and reporting requirements that gives that sort of thing the teeth to ensure the proper execution on the strategy. And I've also seen a lot of sustainability and resilience targets that are set during the planning or design 
um, and design alternatives that are defined during the project initiation that just do not come to fruition in the finished product. And so when I suggest a, a program management approach, I, I really mean for project owners to, to have the tools to ensure that resilience and sustainability vision that they have um, either for their organization or their program or their project, that those are realized, yeah. um, that the policies, procedures, tools, capacity building, and that may be hiring new staff or training existing staff, and, and that the leadership and reporting requirements are, are put in place to make that mm -hmm. happen. So that's something that's really uh, very important to me, because if, for an example, an organization sets a net zero waste or energy goal. Those are really great goals, um, but they're going to need to help internal staff and contractors understand their roles and responsibilities in making that happen. So not just tell them to reduce energy use or reduce waste on their project, but to set a clear target, provide them the training on the requirements and technical solutions that they'll that will lead them to success. Um, and establish reporting requirements and tools to track performance. A goal of that magnitude, and we're seeing a lot of net zero yeah. goals, but a goal of that magnitude that's owned and managed by one or two individuals in a company or on, on a project is, is really not going to um, be achieved. You need that full sense of responsibility communicated to all the staff. And, and folks are really interested in these things. So they're trying to drive these forward and want to be part of the solution, but don't really know how they can support it. Yeah, a, a great example of this that we all have access to is the executive order 14008. Mm -hmm. So what we call the executive order on climate yeah. change. So this order, if you've taken a look at it, you can see it sets goals, it explains the logic and the value to the individuals. It defines a leadership position. It identifies responsible parties in each federal department, establishes committees with remits and members, articulates reporting requirements and sets deadlines. And then the subsequent bipartisan infrastructure law and the president's budget and national defense authorization act, those, those documents collectively provide the funding to support the strategy. And so organizations can create their own scaled version mm -hmm. of this approach themselves. It's a clear articulation of, of what we write about. In the book. It's taking and breaking down those silos again and saying, mm -hmm. okay, well, this is the goal. Then how does each individual section of this organization, whether it's directly working on these issues or is working in procurement or this, the, 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 what we procure for it or, you know, how we go about our actual business practices, how are each of those organizational departments feeding into this overarching strategic goal, and then creating all the different uh, benchmarks that each department has to make to reach that goal. So it's, so it's breaking down this idea and making it a, a, a more of a systems approach. Yeah. If I can right. bounce back on that, yeah, is, yeah. That, yeah. is that... You know, it, what I've been observing on, is that to make this program management approach actually work and the vision a success, really, you got, you're going to need the right tools. Mm -hmm. you, it's just not about just the management as a whole. You need the tools to support it, in, you know, in, in the back of it. You will need to have, like, a project management information system that will be fully integrated to automate the data collection and the dashboard development that will in the end support your sustainability and resilience goals. 
you need to keep an eye on these goals. I mean, you can have all this management uh, in place, but people need to have need to have access to this dashboard to understand where they stand, what else do they need to do. It needs to be very robust, really, because your data mm-hmm. might actually raise questions and highlight issues that we need further adaptation or even further correction to meet your goals. Yeah. So it's really that strategy that you need to make sure that you have all the information organized, you don't misplace, you don't misuse, and that the process is repeatable. I think it's very important that the process can be repeatable. Mm-hmm. And to say what Elizabeth is saying, and, and, and that's, that's something we discuss a lot, her and I, is that we're talking about project management, but it can be scaled down to a different size of project. It doesn't have to be a huge resilience and sustainability project. Any project is a resilient and sustainable project. So yeah. it doesn't matter the size. You will need to have the right tools to scale down. So it could be just an Excel spreadsheet, but something that people are aware of and how far they are to meet the goals that make sense for the project. Yeah, the scalability is important because it's it's everybody, of course, looks at these large, overarching, massive goals like you know a Microsoft or or you know a a you know Google will come out and say we're going to be you know net zero and these huge things, and then you have a smaller company that's like yeah, okay, well we have we we want to move towards this goal. Or we're working on a project that we want to have um, you know sustainability and, and resiliency up front. You know, you, you you be able to scale it down from the small all the way to the to the massive, and and I think your point that you raise about having those tools in place, that that kind of comes into the question of asset management and and the, really where the rubber meets the road between asset management and then also best practices and how they kind of overlap. Um, what, what how how do you approach that from from an organizational perspective? Well. Asset management really starts with what do we what do we have, uh, what do we want to sustain, what do we need to sustain and why, uh, what is resilient, what is vulnerable, and are some assets not as valuable anymore than they used to be? Uh, so that's a kind of question that will guide you towards an adaptive system and a better understanding of your assets. Mm-hmm. So if you have a strong asset management in place, you have a good basis to understand where those vulnerabilities and shocks might be felt most, and you can start maybe prioritizing improvements to reduce those effects. Um, it doesn't have to be just operational and maintenance focus, actually. It can be the foundation for more resilient system, and that, that, I think that's very important yeah. because sometimes people forget about that. Let me, um, like for me, like when I do a port project, what, right, port resilience, what is it defined? It's usually a mechanism that will allow you to cope or recover from any disruption. A port needs to be what it needs to be adaptable, mm-hmm. prepare for changing condition, and you need always to maintain operation. So really a port is like a mini city that's transforming through everything you've been seeing in the news, right? Decarbonization, technology, yeah. environment, and a community globally really depends on a resilient low carbon port to grow. Maintaining the operation is actually key when you see the negative impact COVID had on a supply chain. Mm-hmm. Any failure in a supply chain can impact our economy, the well-being, food security, and so much more. So, so the assets of a port, and I say no port, but it could be any kind of system, right? The asset of a port is basically the skeleton, skeleton of it. It can be bruised, but it should not be broken. And that's what we need to keep in mind. Yeah, that's well put, well put. Uh, Elizabeth, from your perspective, I mean, how do you see that? 
Yeah, I, I think the last few years, and, and Luce hinted at this, last few years has really forced us to look at infrastructure and building asset resilience and and to many more threats and hazards than were commonly considered, say, pre-COVID. Um, so things like public health crisis, population shifts, supply chain disruptions, cyber threats. While in the book, we, we speak about the ability to leverage best practices of asset management and resilience and sustainability space. These last few years has really expanded my own lens on asset management and, and a few considerations that have come to mind over the last few years. Um, I, I want to talk about those. I mean, first, my, my favorite phrase goes something like the most resilient and sustainable asset is the one we don't build. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like yeah. that because it reminds us to think about what we really uh -huh. need and um, whether that's at home or, or in the industry. Yeah. So over the last few years, we've really changed the way we live and work. And some of those changes like increased acceptance of teleworking and the resulting more dispersed workforce will have permanent changes to organizations, but also permanent changes to the infrastructure yeah. needs. So it, it calls the industry to reevaluate their existing capital improvement plans for city and state uh, population projection adjustments, um, review of existing assets and, and planned asset expansion. So consider rail or um, high-speed rail transit projects, wastewater treatment plant projects, all of these things are based on population numbers and usage. And, and so that's going to be changing. So there are projects that we may have planned as an industry pre-COVID that are now no longer justified based on those shifts. And the second thing I think about is, is that we should first consider either improving our maintenance of existing assets, um, like repairing roads or versus rebuilding roads, for example, and adapting what we have for the future or repurposing existing assets like turning shopping malls or unused office spaces into housing to address the housing mm -hmm. crisis that we're facing now. And, and this approach can save money, it reduces the carbon footprint, and it reduces the pressure on the global supply yeah. chain over, say, most new construction. So, and, and finally, by focusing on these money and resource saving approaches first, we really free up funding to upgrade assets with new technology. That's a really good point, especially for policymakers and at, at both federal and state levels. It's it, it, with this influx of funding through the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, you know, states are going to have the ability and should be given the flexibility by the federal government to make decisions based off of what their local needs are based on as you mentioned, population density, the health needs, the the needs of the communities in which that infrastructure should serve. But in making those decisions, they have to take that approach of saying, not just let's let's not just improve what we have, but maybe look at how can we re-engineer what we have to better protect against future impacts of uh climate change or, or, or natural disaster or what have you, and, and, and potentially use the ability of, of, of course, of our industry to, to, to help engineer 
improvements and adaptive infrastructure to to tackle these kind of unknown issues. Um, and that that's a that's kind of a lesson, hopefully that that you know uh, policymakers. Uh, take under consideration when when actually getting into the implementation of this bill. Uh, you know, I I always go like, and I kind of we talked about this earlier. So that idea of, of of you know from a congressional standpoint, the idea of what resilient infrastructure you know is, it, it's something that's kind of evolved over time. At least in Washington, Washington always goes slower than than what's happening in the world, and of course in in, in the private economy. You bring up a really interesting point and in, in, of, of, of intersectionality with these issues, that it's not just resilience. You have to pull in all these social issues, all these economic issues that really tie it all together and create resiliency and sustainability as a multidimensional issue. Um, how do you think, from your experience, both you know, in, in kind of the, 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 the management corporate management uh, advisory, and then also from the actual project work that you've done in ports for, for Dr. Bassetti, you know, how should regulators or, or policymakers adapt their view in writing legislation to kind of look at this question of intersectionality? It's, uh, yeah, as, as I mean, it's in ports, it's in coastal communities, it's, it's a question everybody has, right? Um, so what I, every time we talk about it's, you, this could be a podcast, just this question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, when it comes we'll to have you back on the show. To, to, oh, right. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think for me, when it comes to policymakers and the people doing all this, what I find is that uh, resilience can unfortunately be a polarizing word in some part yeah. of the country. And, if it does not, and it does not need to be ready. I mean, resilience is simply risk reduction. And, and I mean, seriously, what political leader wouldn't want to protect his or her community, mm-hmm. right? I mean, <laughs> police, police, policymakers need to focus on data and best available science and engineering to inform the decision-making progress. And many of the policies that government at all levels, right, local, state, federal, are so outdated. Yeah. So some legislation are like maybe from the 70s, 80s, and even older than that. So policymakers, they really need to make a commitment to modernize the rules and be a bit forward-thinking, and mm-hmm. I think we're missing this. Uh, I also think that we should plan and support each of each other regionally, but I'm a big believer on acting locally. I think local government is the closest to its residents and its issues, and the local elected and appointed official will grasp better the intersectionality uh, uh, when it comes to resilience and sustainability. And then they can move that up to the state and federal level but usually at that level, uh, the reality of a resident issue is not as, um, I'm not going to say important, but I just said it, <laughs> it's not as important. Yeah. Uh, and it, to me, it become more academic at that point. Mm-hmm. So really, when it comes to policymakers, I think the final point to know is that insurer and global finance market are really increasingly looking for communities or organizations to have the climate resilience plan. So the market will be the one pushing politicians to be more effective in their legislation. So yeah. I think we need to look at it this way. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, it's, it's the, yeah, the higher you go, the broader you get, and it's not a lack of interest or, or desire, but it's just you don't have that local understanding of all the actual inputs that make into a, to a policy decision. Um, yeah, Elizabeth, um, uh, what's your opinion? 
Yeah, so, so that's interesting. And at the local level, I, I think one of the, the bigger challenges um, that folks are going to face as they try to address their climate risk um, and they try and make sense of, of the available funds and the bipartisan infrastructure law um, is that they're, they're going to notice that all of these things are a little bit siloed. So even the funding is coming out in a siloed way. Um, so I want to go back to that intersectionality part of your question. When, when funding comes out as funding for energy and funding for water issues and cyber and electric vehicle networks and climate resilience and port resilience, how does a, a community um, not find themselves playing um whack-a-mole mm-hmm. with initiatives and and um, driving growth in an opportunistic rather than cohesive and well-considered way. Yeah. Um, and that can also be really disruptive to the community if there are, are too many ongoing projects that aren't planned well together. So to get ahead of this, municipalities are really going to need to you know, start by breaking down their own silos. And some are better at this than others, but they, they need to define and redefine the goals of their community, again, in this post-COVID world we're in. So what a municipality might do is start a, a planning initiative that includes all the departments. They can start reviewing their shovel-ready projects um, that they already have planned and their existing development plans. They want to discuss ongoing initiatives integrate the considerations of, of risk and opportunities that we've been talking about and, and address changes in the community profile that are, that are resulting from the last few years and of disruption and, and identify project and funding opportunities then at that point, um, which reflects their community's new urban planning goals. That, and that's really a sweet spot for the engineering industry because that's the the, the trusted advisor role that we play, it's, it's helping those municipalities understand better, you know, how they can actually accomplish these goals and, and, and what makes sense and, and how best to, you know, utilize scarce tax dollar resources into the best effect for the communities. So it's really about finding um, synergies around what folks want in their community. So how can you tie together, say, uh, infrastructure corridor project that includes energy, electric vehicles, and stormwater management and leverages funding in each of those buckets, but phases the projects um, so that you don't have a, a big community uh, disruption mm-hmm. or are constantly digging up the same part of the road. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you don't come back and say, well, we got to do the wastewater now and, and, and or we have to make improvements that we could have made beforehand. Let's actually, you know, phase this and, and design it in such a way where it's actually adaptive. So I think this is the kind of good information that anyone from a mayor to a county commissioner to a member of Congress or their staff could take a look at and take into consideration when trying to figure out what to do next. And that's really the value that I think this this book provides. It's it's a great it's just a great overview and the information you have in here is is wonderfully presented and forward looking and and i guess to wrap things up i just want to get an idea from both of you you know what what do you think um needs to happen now for for organizations to accelerate uh their move 
uh, towards a more integrated programmatic approach to resiliency and sustainability. Um, Dr. Bassetti, you know, what do you think? Again, it's, it's, uh, sometimes I'm thinking it's not about accelerating. I know we need to go fast, but it's about being efficient and delivering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes when we feel like we have to accelerate, go fast and do things very, you know, because we have to reach some goals, um, you need to step back and, and think of how to do it properly, make sure that everybody gets involved and it's not just uh, a one band, you know, kind of show. Um, when we, when we started this discussion, you know, I mentioned that resilience and sustainability were not a new concept. I think that's when we're talking, you and I, at the beginning. Um, so I think we've been talking and arguing for way too long. We need to act. That, that's a given. And, and in order to act and, and to actually move forward, we need to be more innovative and break these silos. If we keep having this silo, we're not going to create innovation. We're not going to get people excited. And, and, and we need to talk about our city, your community, all the system or even ecosystem, if you like, as, as a big, as, as a work as one. Um, they're not separate items. And um, the only thing that I might think I might need to accelerate might be the collaborative financing um, yeah. to get improvement delivered. That will be my only thing about acceleration. It will be, you know, we need the, the policies to go faster. We need the collaboration when it comes to financing. But everything else, let, let's make sure that we act, uh, but we think about what we're doing first. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, like I always like to be positive usually in my project and the kind of work mm-hmm. I'm doing. And, and I'm super confident actually that the next generation is really to build on the progress we have and, and what we're talking in the book about. They're really to push things forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the push towards, you know, net zero and natural positive world is happening now. So people are here, they're excited, they want to do the work, but they don't know how to approach it. And this, this, this is why we have, uh, we have put this on paper to give you like a starting point and give you the option to actually, you know, uh, Elizabeth and I have different background, but we meet in this. We understand each other. We understand that we have different ideas, but in the end, a collaboration might, you know, might be the best thing on a project or for clients. So I'm always saying, yeah, right, Elizabeth's like, uh, I don't want to hear any more yes, but. I think yeah. we passed that. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we need, uh, I mean, we are determined, we are empowered, um, and we need to turn these great ideas into reality. And uh, this book chapter is really all about implementing this new normal. Yeah, this is where the desire and the drive meets process to exactly. actually get it done. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Elizabeth, what would you add? Um. A couple things. First, it's really important to remember that these changes aren't going to happen overnight. Um, this is this is definitely what they say: a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, we we will all need to recognize that prioritization of project needs is critical, both because the the industry needs time to build its internal capacity to handle what I see as exponential growth in areas that have been moving pretty slowly up until now. Um, like energy resilience, you know, there's, there's lots of great, uh, projects, but they're limited. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and because we need, um, the, because while the funding is significant, it won't be enough to address everything that's needed. Um, and so we recognize that, but to, to Luce's point, um, 
this volume of work that we're seeing, um, resilience and sustainability can't sit with one person in an organization or on a project. Um, it's going to be all hands on deck now. Um, all the engineering and design disciplines we've been talking about today are driving forward resilient and sustainable designs. They've been doing it for years. Every organization's functional staff are working on resilience and sustainability initiatives. They might not call it that day to day, but actually that's what they're doing. And there's really no better time than now for us to pull that together and start leveraging the hard work and the tools and the lessons learned across the industry to advance the whole um, and to stand up, scale up and out to meet the demand. So if we're going to meet the challenge in front of us, it really must be viewed as everyone's responsibility and because everyone can contribute something uh, to the solutions. Well, it, I, I think that um, it's, a, it's a great approach to take and it's well thought out and written out in this chapter, chapter 11. Again, that's the, uh, the looking ahead, designing a resilient future that's contained in the Climate Change and the Built Environment book available now uh, through ACEC, uh, acec.org. And I encourage everyone to take a look, especially this week as we celebrate Earth Day. Um, and I really do appreciate your time today, uh, both uh, Dr. Pacetti and um, Elizabeth Bradford, uh, who have contributed to this book. Um, thank you very much for your expertise and uh, hope to have you back on the show. I think there's, this, is, this is not the only time we're going to be talking about this. I think that as the bill gets fully implemented and we see money starting to go through and, and, and in the projects, it's going to be interesting to see exactly how um, that money is being used and, and, and hopefully it is being used in a, in, a, in a good programmatic systemic process as like you list out in this book. So thank you again for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. And again, this has been Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We'll see you next time. Thank you.